Welcome. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians, the fourth chapter, we're continuing our study on spiritual stability. And today we will be focusing on particularly one verse, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, that says the following, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. We have been talking about for the last several weeks about spiritual stability. We've been talking about how that we can be spiritually stable by cultivating harmony in the church fellowship, by maintaining a spirit of joy, by learning to be content and resting on a confident faith in the Lord. Last week we saw about, we looked at how gratitude uh, brings about the ability to react to problems in life with a thankful heart. We can react to any situation we face with thanksgiving. That's a hallmark of spiritual stability. Well, today we're going to look at godly thinking. Godly thinking, the necessity of thinking on godly virtues for spiritual maturity. And that's what Paul is talking about here to his beloved church at Philippi. Notice the word, finally. He says right here, finally, brethren. The word finally indicates that Paul has arrived at the climax of his teaching on spiritual stability. The principles that he is about to relate is both the summation of all the others, again, of cultivating harmony, maintaining a spirit of joy, learning to be content, resting on a confident faith in the Lord, reacting to problems with thanksgiving. This, this is the summation of all of those, and it is also the key to implementing them the key to implementing those that have immediately proceeded. So I want you to write this down as we begin. The phrase, dwell on these things, introduces an important truth, and here it is. Spiritual stability. Spiritual stability is a result of how a person thinks. Spiritual stability is the result of how a person thinks. So the first thing I want to show you this morning is the command to uh, focus your attention. Paul prioritizes the mind with these terms. Dwell on these things. Notice it says dwell on. It means to think about, to be focused upon mentally. The Philippians must focus upon the things that are worthy of their thought. Dwell is the word logizomai. Logizomai, and it comes into the English language as logarithms or logic. Uh, this is a mathematical term and it carries the idea of making a careful calculation requiring great concentration. The word means to reckon, uh, to evaluate, to consider, to take into account. And it conveys the idea of thinking carefully about something. So he says, logizomai, dwell on. The Philippians need to mentally focus. They need to individually intellectually dwell upon certain things which are lawful and proper. Therefore, dwell on is in the present tense. 
meaning that they should always be thinking this way. They should always be thinking about the things that he is about to enumerate. There, there's never a day off from the, from the requirement to do something, there, to d continue this thinking progress, uh, this thinking out process. Further, it is in the active voice indicating that they must take action to dwell on these things. It's not something that will happen automatically. It's, it's in the active sense. They have to do it. No one can do it for them. No one can dwell on these things for them. They have to do it individually, intellectually. And notice it is in the imperative. It is an apostolic command from the authority of Paul himself. He says, do this in the present tense right now actively I command you to dwell on these things. So I want you to write this down. If we focus upon what is right, we will live rightly. If we focus upon what is right, we will live rightly. And conversely, if we focus upon what is wrong, we will live wrongly. And so there is an inseparable connection between what we think about and how we live. What we think about and how we live are inseparable. There's a connection between the two of them. Right thoughts produce right, think, right living, just as wrong thoughts produce wrong living. Makes sense, and we cannot focus our minds on what is wrong and then live out by what is right. You just cannot do it. If the consumption of your intellect is, is found upon that which is negative or fake or false or not one of these virtues that are mentioned in this text, there is no possible way that you can live rightly. Because what you put in your mind is what's going to come out of it. In fact, it is a deposit that is being made into our minds that are yielding the return of interest in this life. And if it's bad, then it will return the interest of bad. If it's good, it will return the interest of good. The Bible leaves no doubt that people's lives are to produce are products of their thoughts. In fact, in Proverbs 23, verse 7, it declares, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. As he thinks within himself, therefore so he is. And a, a modern counterpart of this, I remember learning this in computer science as the concept of GIGO. Garbage in, garbage out. If you put junk into your spreadsheet, then you're going to get junk out of your spreadsheet. Just as a computer output is dependent upon the information that's been put into it, so people's reactions are the same as their thinking, are the result of their thinking. If you put in things that cause bad thinking, then the output will be bad. Jesus expressed this truth in Mark chapter 7 and verses 20 through 23, that which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles the man. From within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, theft, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So the reality is Paul's call for biblical thinking is especially relevant in the culture in which we live today. The focus today seems to be on emotion and pragmatism. While the importance of serious thinking about biblical truth is downplayed, I, I know folks that, and I'm sure you do too, that says you need to get out of your mind and get into your heart. 
That is an emotional pragmatism. That is, that is foreign from the Scripture as you're going to see in just a moment. It's people no longer ask what is true. They ask this question, does it work and how does it make me feel? They don't ask, is it true? They want to know, does it work and how does it make me feel? Those later two questions serve as a working definition for truth in our society that rejects the concept of absolute truth, which is divine truth. So thus, truth is whatever works and produces positive emotions. That's, that's the world we live in today. Unfortunately, we still have to live in this world with its wrong thinking because it is not true that whatever works produces positive results. That is absolutely a lie. Such pragmatism and emotionalism has crept even into our theology. Even into our theology, the church is often more concerned about whether something will be divisive or offensive than whether it is biblically true. The basis of truth is if it causes harmony. If it causes discord, it cannot be true. There's no way it can be true. Well, when your church is filled with people that are constantly concerned with the truth of pragmatism and emotionalism instead of the biblical authority of truth, what you have is a synagogue of Satan. You do not have a people that come together in the desire for knowing what their authority is and submitting to that authority, and that is the Word of God, God's truth. And that's why you see these places that stand for nothing because they believe everything, because it is based upon pragmatism and emotionalism. And such a pers perspective is far different from what you see of the noble Bereans in the Bible who searched the Scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. Now I want you to know something. They didn't search the Scriptures, church member, to go see if they agreed with the pastor or not. They didn't search the Scripture to see if they had the same interpretation or not or the same opinion about something or not, or about what they believed or not. They searched the Scripture to see if what was said was true, to see if God, to feel that God is still with them. That's what they did. They searched not whether it was divisive or practical, but to do it in such a way to see if Paul was telling the truth. And too many people go to church for the wrong reason to think about um, to, to get their weekly spiritual high or their need for social fellowship or to feel that God is somehow still with them. And such people are spiritually unstable because they base their lives rather on pragmatism and feelings instead of thinking. Instead of thinking. Let me give you a quote. A man named Bill Hull writes, What scares me is the anti-intellectual, anti-critical thinking philosophy that has spilled over into the church. This, this philosophy tends to romanticize the faith, making the local church into an experience center. Their concept of church is that they are spiritual consumers and that the church's job is to meet their felt needs. That comes from a book entitled Right Thinking, written in 1985. John Stott 
who is a marvelous gift to the church, a great scholar who has gone on to be with the Lord, also warned of the dangers of Christians living by their feelings. He says in his book, Your Mind Matters, indeed sin has more dangerous effects on our faculty of feelings than our faculty of thinking because our opinions are more easily checked and regulated by revealed truth than our experiences. Do you hear what he says? Sin has a more dangerous effect on the faculties of our feeling than the faculty of our thinking. It is no wonder so many people are caught up in their sins because they're living in their feelings instead of the faculties of their mind. So focus your attention. Focus your attention. The first part is this, letter A. True Christianity is marked by careful thinking. By careful thinking. He said to rebellious Israel, Come now and let us reason together in Isaiah 1.18. Jesus chided the unbelieving Pharisees and Sadducees for demanding a miracle sign from Him. Instead, He challenged the sign from instead he challenged them to think and draw inference from the evidence they had just it, they had just as they did predict the weather and this is from Matthew 16:1 through 3 and in Luke 12:57 he said to the crowds and why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right here's a fact god gave his revelation in a book he did it's the bible and you expect people to use their minds to understand the book. So I want you to write this down. Careful thinking is the distinctive mark of the Christian faith. Careful thinking is the distinctive mark of the Christian faith. Let me show you why. James Orr expressed this reality very clearly saying, If there is a religion in the world which exalts the office of teaching, it is safe to say that it is the religion of Jesus Christ. It has been frequently remarked that in pagan religions the doctrinal elements is at a minimum the chief thing there is the performance of a ritual. But this is precisely where Christianity distinguishes itself from other religions. It does, it does contain doctrine. It comes to men with definite positive teachings. It claims to be the truth. It is base. Its basis religion on it bases religion on knowledge, though a knowledge which is often attainable under moral conditions. I do not see how anyone can deal fairly with the facts as they lie before us in the gospel and the epistles without coming to the conclusion that the New Testament is full of doctrine. A religion divorced from earnest and lofty thoughts has always, down through the history of the church, tended to become weak, jejune, and unwholesome. While the intellect, deprived of its right within religion, has sought its satisfaction without it and developed into godless rationalism. That comes from the Christian view of God in the world written in 1897. Amazing. 120 years ago, and it is completely applicable today. For example, concerning the mind of man, the Bible describes the unsaved mind as depraved. It calls it focused on the flesh, which leads to spiritual death. It's known as being hostile to God, foolish and hardened to spiritual truth. It is blinded by Satan. It is futile and ignorant, and as it says in Titus 1.15, 
it is truly defiled. And because of that, the first element in salvation is the proper mental understanding of the truth of the gospel. Jesus said this in Matthew 13, 19, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one come and snatches away what has been sown into his heart. Romans 10, 17 could be translated this way, Faith comes by hearing a speech about Christ. Of course it says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Faith comes from hearing a speech about Christ, emphasizing again that faith involves thinking, just as Isaiah said in chapter 1, verse 18, Come now and let us reason together. That is why Peter commands believers to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. One of the great Puritans of old, J. Grisham Macon, observed, What the Holy Spirit does in the new birth is not is not to make a man a Christian regardless of the evidence. But on the contrary, to clear the way, to clear away the mist from his eyes and enable him to attend to the evidence. That comes from the Christian faith in the modern voice written in 1965. God saves people to be worshipers, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, as the Bible says in John 4.24. Thus it is therefore impossible to worship God apart from the truth. It's impossible to worship God apart from the truth. When Paul visited Athens, the, the cultural capital of the ancient world, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols in Acts 17.16. But that disturbed him as much as the blatant. But what disturbed him as much as the blatant idolatry was that he found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, to the unknown God in Acts seventeen twenty three. Natural minds can see the world and conclude there is a God. Truly, atheism is a choice. Atheism is a choice to deny God's existence. It's not a choice to not believe in God. It is to deny it. It is to deny it. Necessarily, to be an atheist, you have to believe there's a God. You have to believe that there is something, thus not to believe in it. And so what is atheism? It is the denial of God's existence. It is the denial of God's existence. But by human reason it can only be known that He exists, not who He is. To the natural reason He is the unknown and the unknowable God. He can only be truly known by supernatural theology, the revelation of Scripture. God will not accept worship based on ignorance. Paul therefore proceeds to explain to the Athenian philosophers who God has revealed Himself to be in Acts 17, 24 through 31. And I want to look there. Acts 17, 24 through 31. It says right here, "...to the unknown God, therefore..." The one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and the everlasting in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. 
And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, also, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by the art, by art and man's devising. Truly these things of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, to repent, because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Of course, speaking of Christ being raised from the dead. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. The reality of it is, is that to natural reason, God is unknown. And He is the unknowable God but He is there. He can only be known, though, personally through supernatural theology, that is, the revelation of His Scripture. And God will not accept a worship that is based upon ignorance. He therefore proceeds to explain, as I have just mentioned to you, this passage of Scripture from Acts 17 on His discourse to the Athenian philosophers and their pantheon about the unknown God. So you need to focus your attention. True Christianity is marked by careful thinking, but also true faith is marked by a reasoned response. True faith is marked by a reasoned response. In sharp contrast to, contemporary, to the contemporary definition of faith, biblical faith is not an irrational leap in the dark. It is not a mystical encounter with the holy other or the ground of being nor is it optimism, psychological self-hypnosis, or wishful thinking. I want you to write this down. True faith is a reasoned response to revealed truth in the Bible. True faith is a reasoned response to revealed truth in the Bible. And salvation results from an intelligent response prompted by the Holy Spirit that, uh, to that truth. So here's what I want you to recall. In Matthew chapter 6, 26, 25, I want you to go over there. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus, of course, is giving the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. Let me show you something. Beginning in verse 25. He's talking about do not worry. Right here. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not your life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubic to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say... 
to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field and today is, to, is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. Listen, Jesus rebuked the disciples for the sin of worry. We know that uh, in this passage it tells us, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication make your requests unto God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. And, then, and so then we move us directly into this verse right here, verse 8. And so here's the remarkable section from a classic work, Studies on the Sermon on the Mount, by the great preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He points out that the disciples' problem was that they failed to think. This passage here where Jesus rebukes the disciples in Matthew chapter 6, 25-34, He rebukes them. And Lloyd-Jones points out the fact they had failed to think. They were worrying because they were not using their mind. They allowed themselves to be controlled by their circumstances. So here's what he says, Faith, according to our Lord's teaching in this paragraph, is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with a man of little faith is that he does not think. The whole trouble with a man of little faith is he does not think. He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. That is the real difficulty in life. Life comes to us with a club in hands and strikes us upon the head and we become incapable of thought, helpless and defeated. The way to avoid that, according to our Lord, is to think. We must spend our time in studying our Lord's lessons in observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic and we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We do not just sit down in the armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. This is not Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds, think about them, and draw your deductions. Look at the grass, look at the lilies of the field, consider them and think about them and draw your deductions. The trouble with most people, he goes on to say, however, is that they will not think. Instead of doing this, they sit down and ask, what's going to happen to me? What can I do? What, that is the absence of thought. It is surrender. It is defeat. Our Lord here is urging us to think and to think in a Christian manner. That is the very essence of faith. Faith, if you like, can be defined like this. It is a man insisting upon thinking when everything seems determined to bludgeon or knock him down in an intellectual sense. The trouble with a person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thoughts, his thought is being controlled by something else, and as we put it, he goes around and around and around in circles. That is the essence of worry. That is not thought. That is the absence of thought. A failure to think. What a magnificent, magnificent discussion. So, let me show you this. Focus your attention. 
with careful thinking, with reasoned responses, and with a transformed mind. Write this down. Salvation involves a transformation of the mind. Salvation involves a transformation of the mind. In Romans 8, verse 5, Paul writes, Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That is, unsaved, fleshly people have an unsaved, fleshly mindset. And they think as fallen, unredeemed people. On the other hand, those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Their renewed minds are focused on spiritual truth. Consequently, the mind is set upon the flesh in death, but the mind is set upon the Spirit is life and peace. That's Romans 8, 6. The Holy Spirit now controls the mind that before salvation was depraved, ignorant, and blinded by Satan, as it appears in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. But the redeemed mind no longer thinks on the fleshly level, but on the spiritual level. Listen, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, Paul describes one of the most amazing realities of salvation. Christ Jesus became the wisdom of God, became to us, became to us the wisdom from God. Believers, listen, renewed minds can plunge into the deep thoughts of an eternal God and never reach the bottom. Moreover, in 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 16, Paul expands on the thought. He says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit whom is in God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in word, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Friend, if we have the mind of Christ, we need to use it. Think about that. In contrast, the natural man who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit grants to believers the ability to know the things freely given to us by God. And so, in fact, we have the mind of Christ through the Spirit. Believers have knowledge of God that they would otherwise never have had. What an amazing truth. Just as the believer's initial act of saving faith leads to life of faith, so also the transforming of the mind as salvation initiates a lifelong process of renewing the mind. As it says in Romans 12 verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To the Ephesians he wrote, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Jesus answering the question as to which is the greatest commandment of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Peter also spoke of renewing the mind when he commanded, prepare your minds 
for action. Paul called for believers to set their minds on the things above, not on the things of this earth. See, salvation brings about the transformation of the mind. More than a dozen times in his epistle, Paul asked his readers, Do you not know? We're to be people that think. We're to be a thinking people. And so the bottom line is the apostle expected believers to think and to evaluate. However, this is not exclusively a New Testament perspective. It's also in the Old Testament. In Proverbs chapter 2, 1 through 6, Solomon counseled, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make, sure, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as forbidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth, comes knowledge and understanding. Hallelujah! Salvation leads to the transformed mind. We are to be about uh, thinking. We're to be thinking. The psalmist cried, Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Remember, those of little faith don't think. So in this next word, Paul provides. In the next word, Paul provides the timeless, transcendent principles that stretch over the centuries. They stretch over cultures, and they stretch over continents. They, and they are applicable and relevant for every one of us here today. And within each one of these descriptions, he is putting a fence around that which we ought to be allowing into our minds to think about. So let me ask you a question before I finish. What do you dwell upon? What do you dwell upon? What really is the focus of your attention? Here is the requirement for peace that establishes the mind. Remember it says, and the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus in the preceding verse. What is it that will bring this peace that establishes the peace of God? And he says it in the rest of verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence if, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Paul catalogs eight godly objects upon which Christians must concentrate. Eight godly objects upon which Christians must concentrate. And so believers must discipline their minds to think upon these spiritual subjects. So what we've been talking about is focus your attention. That's the first thing. Focus your attention with careful thinking, with reasoned response, and with a transformed mind. Number two, discipline your thoughts. Discipline your thoughts. You want to focus your attention, and now as we finish, you must discipline your thoughts. Believers must discipline their spiritual sensitive minds to think about the right spiritual realities. Number one, whatever is true. Whatever is true, 
True, the Greek word here means that which is reliable, faithful, distinguishing that which is false or a lie. That is, their minds need to be fixed upon whatever is real, genuine, and authentic. What is true is found in, what is true is found in or aligns with the Word of God. So whatever is true is found in and aligns with the Word of God. Whatever is true is defined by the Scripture. Whenever the Bible says something, it is real. So write this down. Focusing upon what is true leads to true Christianity. Focusing on what is true leads to true Christianity and equally d dwelling upon that, dwelling on what is the antithesis of truth produces false living. Number two, whatever is honorable. Whatever is honorable, the Greek word here means that which is noble, dignified, lofty, elevated, venerable, or august. It represents that which is of a high and lofty morality. They must set their thoughts on elevated things. They should think about that which pulls them up and not what takes them down. They should think about those things that pull them above the muck and the mire of this world. They should concentrate upon those things that are principled, decent, and upright. Paul is saying, get your mind off the low and base things. Get your mind out of the gutter. Get your attention off frivolous things. Focus on whatever is honorable. For sure, in a culture today that is consciously more and more casual, focusing on that which is honorable is truly a biblical virtue. Number three, whatever is right the word right means in the Greek that which is upright and holy, which conforms to the law of God. That conforms to the law of God. A standardized measure would be placed on one side of a scale in the ancient marketplace when you went to go weigh something. And the amount of whatever you're buying would be placed on one side of the scale and the standard weight would be placed on the other side and the scale once it was in balance, you had the, whatever you were purchasing matched the amount, the standard amount, the standard weight for that amount on the scale. The term right comes from the scale. That very term right comes from that procedure where you put a standard amount on a standard weight on something and then you you weigh it down with what you're buying and it balances the scale. That was called right. The scale would be right. It's where the word comes from. And at whatever point it balanced out, it was considered right. That is the idea here. On one side of the scale of the Christian living is the holiness of God. And on the other side is what the believer focuses his mind upon. So over here is the holiness of God and over here is what I focus my mind upon what I focus my mind upon, and I want to bring it into balance. I will never bring it into balance if my mind is not focused on the holy things of God. Whenever a believer thinks about needs to be squared with the absolute purity of God. Whatever you think about needs to be squared with the absolute purity of God. His thoughts must be in conformity with God's Word. Number four, Whatever is pure comes from the root word to be holy, comes from the word holiness or sanctification. The word refers to what is unmixed with moral impurities and is set apart to be ethnic, ethically clean. It, was, it, it is what is unmixed with filth or unadulterated with moral corruption. 
The Philippians, for example, should fill their minds with whatever is morally pure. They should think upon whatever is wholesome, a virtuous and unstained and incorruptible mind. They should be, there should be censorship in every Christian's mind. We hear a lot about being censored today. The place we need to censor is our minds. If it doesn't square with the holiness of God, if it is impure, we need to censor that out. If we're to live a pure life that is an unstained Christ-like life, our minds need to dwell upon what is pure. And number five, whatever is lovely. The lovely here speaks of, speaks of uh, that which is pleasing, attractive, and beautiful, which reflects ethical beauty. The word refers to the beauty of holiness as opposed to the hideousness of sin. Lovely then represents that which is sweet. It's gracious and it's generous. Whatever is lovely, that which is beautiful in the eyes of God and spiritually attractive to those who are pure in heart. In this way, believers need to direct their thoughts onto what the Bible says is pleasing to God. He defines what is attractive, not us and not the world. The world very often hangs something unlovely on a fishing lure, so to speak, as bait marked as lovely. So Christians need to take every effort, make every effort to remain focused upon that which is truly lovely, which is defined for us in the Scriptures. Just a few more. Whatever is of good repute, this word good repute, euphemous, it means that which is well spoken of or highly regarded. Good report. The idea refers to whatever is well spoken of by God. It is that which is highly respectable in the eyes of God. Paul warns about the negative aspect of this in his letter to the Ephesians. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse joking which are not fitting but rather of giving thanks. This is Ephesians 5 verse 4. These forbidden things are not fitting for any believer who is pursuing holiness. Do you hear that coarse joking? It's not fitting of any believer. Instead, it should be high and holy calling upon our lives that we should dwell upon that which is morally respectable and our speech should follow though our thinking process. Number seven, if there is any excellence, Christians should dwell on this if there is, starts the bottom line summary of this whole passage. Excellence means virtue. It means virtue. Only that which reflects high moral standards should dominate our thinking. Whatever reflects the holiness of Almighty God to which is morally excellent and pleasing should fill our minds and occupy our thoughts. If we dwell upon that which is excellent, we will live a spiritually excellent life. So here's the application. Our affections then will be consumed with His perfect and pleasing will. And all that starts at the highest level with the mind. With the mind. And number eight, anything worthy of praise. Anything worthy of praise this encompasses whatever is and can be praised by God. It means we should think about whatever can be applauded in the presence of God. 
Christian focus their thoughts upon what, upon only whatever can be commended by God. Put another way, this is whatever can be extolled by the holiness of Almighty God. Therefore, let the mind of the believer be set upon these things. These eight marks define what should saturate our thinking. Ultimately, each of these objects is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Literally, His virtues. This is how He thought consistently and constantly in every circumstance at every point. And so whatever meets the mark is acceptable and pleasing to God and whatever falls short of this standard is unacceptable. Period. For sure we must guard our minds because we will soon become like that upon which we are thinking. So as we have learned, focus your attention with careful thinking, with reasoned responses, with a transformed mind. Discipline your thoughts. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that you bring this wonderful, rich text alive to our hearts that You would open the eyes of our heart to what, to Your Word as to what these truths are that we have heard. This is such an applicable lesson for the time we live in. And we know that of the necessity of thinking on godly virtues leads to our spiritual stability. We must be a people of godly thinking. And Father, our thinking demonstrates to us whether we belong to You or not. If, our, if we are completely and totally consumed by the flesh, our minds have not been transformed. They have not been renewed. And so the gospel call of Christ is for any and all those whose minds are stayed completely upon the flesh and their circumstances. What you need, friend, is a Savior. You need a Savior. And the own, and the own evidence of your thinking proves it. Because through Christ Jesus, our minds are transformed. And so I've given you today, O oh God, your people the ability for a careful thinking to give a reasoned response that they may have a transformed mind. And it is my prayer that those who do not know Christ will answer the call to come to Him in repentance and belief, in total surrender to His salvation and His glorious grace. And for those of us in Christ... I pray, Father, that You would find us using our minds, that we would be about the business of godly thinking, and the very things that we put into our minds would be those things that are virtuous. These eight objects that we have spoken of briefly, those would be the things that would occupy our thoughts, our eyes, and our ears. 
I ask your blessing on all those who have been privileged to hear. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Now may God bless you and keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you.